of emotional intelligence. My father tried to teach me about emotional intelligence at a very young age. I don't think I learned it so well. But as I've grown older, have kids, a wife, you know, um, emotional intelligence for me is like an incredibly important skill. And I would assume mm-hmm. as a leader, you know, it's not something um, that you think about, but it, when, when somebody has it, you know it. Oh, I mean, if, uh, if anyone has emotional intelligence, they could probably thrive about anything related to other people. Um, I don't know that I'm very good at it. What I have learned is that quick action on a spike in emotion, one direction or the other, almost always leads to bad things. And also, inaction almost always leads to bad things. So I think it's this balance between I have a strong bias towards action, that has certainly hurt me at some points in my life, and certainly helped me at some points in my life. But I think emotional intelligence also is con- understanding the context, understanding the setting that you're currently in, and, and what is the best right thing right now. <clears throat> you know, there, as a parent, people will say, well, you know, you count to whatever it is right before you react to kids or whatever. Um, and that's pretty good advice, pretty sound advice. Although, if you never react, that's also not good. I think that as you're dealing with another person, being able to read, like really people who are really good emotionally intelligent, they know when to just let that person go. If you look at like arguments um, and how quickly someone cuts the other person off or whatever, that doesn't lead to good things. But if they let the person overpower them, it doesn't lead to good things too. So I think emotional intelligence is like, okay, what's the context I'm in? Who am I dealing with? And is it one-to-one? Is it one-to-many? Um, oftentimes, it's very important. Like I, in, in sales, I always call it, let them get the poison out. So let them express whatever it is that they have. And especially if you have an objection to something. I, you know, selling is just such a measurable thing because ultimately someone either does or does not sign something. So you can measure what works and what doesn't. And often you have objections. Like kind of in any profession, but in sales, when you say there's a binary thing here and they said no, and therefore I failed, that's almost never true. You have to get dig in a little bit deeper. And so that that you know, that occupation, people who are good at it, they become good at really understanding cause of what's going on, why they make a decision. Well, you gotta apply that to life. If you look at romantic relationships, or if you look at, you know, community relationships, just seeking to understand. And this actually kind of comes back to moving in, you know, living in different parts of the world. I grew up in sort of the Midwest and then my like, you know, junior high, high school university was all in Nebraska. And, you know, it's a very um, conservative area, not just politically. I mean, Warren Buffett lives there, for example, you know, I was like, but then, uh, you know, from there I went to like London, pretty different, and then Chicago. But right in the height of a lot of division in the country, you know, COVID was full on. We had, you know, a bunch of social protests happening in Chicago. We moved to Austin. And, you know, politically, Austin's like a blue dot in a red state. What I found fascinating about that is almost everyone personally knew someone on the other side of the argument. And so there wasn't, it was pretty civil. People were able to, and they're very, like, adamant about expressing their opinion, but it was a pretty civil uh, scenario. And I found that to be like, real, it's the first community I've lived in that has, you know, I, I kind of live right in the purple area. <laughs> like I'm about 25 miles. I'm a sort of Lakeway BK area. And 
if I go west 10, 10 miles, I mean, it's pickups and shotguns. And if I go east 10 miles, it's about as liberal as you get in a U.S. metropolitan. And so that mixture is actually super healthy. And I think just using that from a business context, good leaders can make sure that everyone feels heard. They can find ways to either bring people together or help people realize when it's not a good idea to do so. Like that, I think, is a lot of, a lot of leadership context. And a big part of that is depersonalizing it. This isn't about me. And, th- and that's hard because it's very human nature to say, I'm thinking about myself all the time. And then I think about emotional intelligence is sort of being able to step back from see yourself differently, mm-hmm. be able to control that. I think you have to be honest. You know, there's, it, it's not easy to be honest with yourself. We play tricks all the time on our, on our own minds. But, you know, i use an example. I was in an organization that was, um, the organization, the part of the business I was in was retracting, necessarily retracting based on the economics and also based on the fact that kind of self-serve product-led growth was stronger than enterprise sales was. And reading that, eventually, the obvious conclusion to me was my role, and especially the compensation for that role and all that, actually wasn't necessary. Well, it wouldn't become that. And the right thing is I actually had a couple of really good leaders that could could run the organization. And then as I got a little deeper into it, I said, you know, I actually would be a better fit in an organization that required what I'm really good at. And so the right thing for me is not self-serving. The right thing for me is to recognize reality. This is a business. And make that call. Because if you're in an environment where your skill set, your passion, your energy isn't really what's required for the business, you're unhappy and they're unhappy. And so I think it's being willing to be honest with ourselves. And I don't know that I can emphasize enough the importance of getting yourself in an economic situation where you can make good decisions. A lot of professional decisions, the bad ones, are made due to scarcity. And it's not about how much money you make. You know, it's like there's the saying that if your outgo exceeds your income, your upkeep will be your downfall. Reference Silicon Valley Bank. Mm-hmm. That, that, these say. things happen. And, and that's true. And so, but, you know, like personally, if you're super tight, on everything financially, you're going to make short-term decisions because, well, what if this and this and this? And fear comes in and it creates this panic, causes interpersonal relationship problems. And you know, I people I know people who are my landscapers. One of the most sort of free people I know, because it's not about income, it's about he and his family live in a scenario where they're uh, they have a pretty significant buffer between what they consume and what they make. And I think, I know that's purely economics, but I do think professionally that comes into play a lot. People are super stressed out. They're living on a margin and it's just hard to make those good long-term decisions. Then, then how is a leader, you know, cause the leaders are obviously, you know, they have to report to their, their board that they've made money and, and, and they, you know, they have quotas to hit whatever it may be. You know, and you talk about those short-term decisions of scarcity, you know, how, you know, how do you, how do you, see it big picture like listen we have to make what you short term may be a bad decision mm-hmm. but you see sort of long term that there'll be a, a bigger play you know because people are want that satisfaction right now and 
you know, how, how do you sort of convince people to say, listen, this is a tough decision. Um, short term, I could go the other way and, and sense of immediate success, but we're not going to play that. We're going to play the long game. Well, I think a lot of it is you have to believe that. You have to believe that that's the right thing. But like, it's about, to me, I know uh, a lot of people don't like you, the use of the word dream, but I like, to me, I feel like that's, I'm like a hope dealer or a dream builder, whatever you want to call it. And I know that sounds hokey, but little dreams do not inspire. If you have a big enough vision of what can be, and it's believable, and you actually have a plan to do that, then the short-term stuff, you can get through. And if, I'll give you an example of this. I think somebody who does a good, a great job of painting a really big vision, and some people think it's way out there and crazy, but if you look at what Elon Musk has done specifically with SpaceX. So uh, I have a brother in aerospace. I know quite a few people who are in that area. And at the end of the day, most of those companies are doing something tactically pretty similar, building rockets or whatever it is. Um, but the messaging is so different. When, I mean, when Elon talks about ha building a multiplanetary species because it seems inevitable that we'll need to do that in order for the human race to, you know, that you listen to that and you're like, I mean, logically, that's, that makes sense. Um, and there's these things that are so big and inspiring that like the short-term setbacks don't seem as relevant. And so really what you're doing is you're hiring metallurgical engineers and you're hiring, you know, all the different people that are also in competition in the rest of the world, but the vision's different. And the same can be true with Virgin Galactic, same is true with Blue Origin. It's just a different vision, it's a different idea, same skill sets. And I think that's what gets people through. If you look at the tech sector, like for the most part, I mean, typical economics, but you know, 80-20 rule, like most of the big ideas didn't happen. We just know about the ones that did. But the reason people have been willing from all over the world to go to Silicon Valley, where it's super expensive to live, and the like, commutes are crazy if you're going you know, from the city or whatever, all the difficulty, why? Because they're changing the world. And that industry created a narrative that was so attractive to the best and brightest that they came. And it was people, you know, long before that, if you look at people like, you know, Steve Jobs wasn't selling a computer or a phone, he was talking about changing the world. And I think that's the stuff that really inspires people is having something. Now to me, I, I think it's disingenuous to create a narrow narrative only to keep people from recognizing how terrible it is in the moment. And that's actually for people who are effective communicators, it's easy to spin things and it's easy to distract things and it's easy to be a fraud. And we've seen this in a lot of companies. They paint this big grandiose thing and then when you realize the emperor has no clothes, eventually people quit trusting. We've seen it happen, I think, in governments all over the world. Like the level of trust in the sort of centralized big entities out there has gone down, down, down. And so as business leaders, I feel like it's so important for us to be transparent, to be authentic. You have to have that big vision, the big dream, but you have to have a plan to get there. Right. I say, I say with my wife all the time, you know, it's the idea is the easy part. It's the execution is where sort of like the rubber beats the road, right? right. Um, when you look back at your sort of, you mentioned Elon Musk, and you know, we talked about Joe Rogan. Are there other sort of business leaders or, or you know, figures that you sort of aspire to that you, you know, sort of influenced you or, or inspired you to sort of do something great or, or, or do something bigger than, than yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the ones you mentioned are like recent and they're sort of, you, you can use them as examples. Um, 
I, I guess initially I was first influenced by my family. And I watched, you know, like I watched my grandfather do things at the time were super innovative. You know, it was um, artificial insemination of ants. Like he was breeding breeds of cattle in the early 70s from Europe here. And so he was able to make a lot more money by doing things that, you know, he's taking a Santa Gertrudis bull and whatever, Charlotte, and, and doing things that were unique and different with this guy with an eighth grade education. So I saw that, but I also saw that like his, his word was his bond. It, my grandfather always told me, if you lose money, you can replace it. If you lose a friend, you've lost something of value. If you lose your word, you've lost everything. And I watched him live that out. And so I saw, obviously, it helped in business because everyone trusted him. And I watched, you know, with my father, and then when he ended up moving off the ranch and got into banking, I mean, he was a, an ag banker, so he was loaning money to, like, farmers and ranchers and all that. But if you don't know that relationship, it's usually very adversarial. Nobody likes their banker. And yet, growing up, I never met anybody that didn't like my dad. He just had the people skills, and he was fun and serving and, and humble, and it was fun to watch. So I, those, to me, were like early examples. And then I got, uh, so I was in college, and I was wrestling at the university. One of the captains on the team started a, like, a, like a direct sales business, like kind of side hustle while going to school. He had to reach out to me. That introduced me to a group of mentors that really were the early, like very much shaped my early 20s. And what I saw from them, they would be what now I think would be probably determined as a servant leader. They built businesses that believe if they help you succeed, ultimately they would succeed. And since it was a direct sales organization, that was true. And I watched uh, this organization, a guy named Ron Pereira and some others, who went out of their way to help empower other small businesses. And in doing so, they like amassed a fortune. <laughs> like this is the first guy that I ever met that had like a private jet and full-time pilots and whatever, and just a super humble guy. And watching the result of not just the economics, I watched the joy that he got from helping other people. And he would tell you about this person who had moved there three years earlier from Korea and the story of what they'd done and then introduced me to him. And these people were like more successful than he was. And so that was a big influence in my life. Because in my mind, I always thought big corporate people, he wasn't really corporate, but I thought they were top down. And I read a lot. So I, was, I read about, you know, the Gettys and Rockefellers and Mellows, like those early ones who like, built massive organizations, Carnegie, and impressive what they built, but also the, the mindset I had was pretty top down. So that was, that was an influence. Um, and throughout, you know, my, my career, there have been a bunch of them, but... In the corporate tech world, I think from a leadership standpoint, I think Jeff Weiner, the CEO of LinkedIn, was like to me the definition of what compassionate leadership looks like. Because he also came in, you know, he was not sort of native Silicon Valley. He was like East Coast guy, you know, Wharton education, like you know, whip smart. And probably early when I first met him, it was very clear that he was the smartest guy in the room. Hmm. And then he. I think invested in himself and over time brought in such an amazing group of people and, and transformed himself as a leader. Like when you see somebody who's really great and they're the pinnacle and you see that and you're like, that's great. It's more inspiring to watch the journey. Somebody who had some rough edges and they had to sand them off and develop, that was, that was you know, pretty fantastic. And, and there's a guy you know, here in Chicago, Mike Gampson. Gampson was somebody who uh, was my second boss at LinkedIn, and I, I reported to him for a long period of time there. And just his ability to 
collectively inspire people in a way that was pretty selfless. It's amazing. You know, I, I've heard that name, Mike Gamson, because I think he's from around the same town that James and I, I live in. And then, you know, you talked about, you mentioned success, because I think there are two topics I think I want to touch on. One is success, how you define success, and then is uh, work-life balance, which is a very, yeah. a lot of meat there that we can get to. But, you know, you mentioned success. To you, success probably meant one thing, what you would envision yourself to be successful. Mm -hmm. You are now, a little bit later, the arc of your career. You look back and you think about success. You know, how has it changed from when you were sort of starting out to as you sit right here? When, what, was that, what was that journey like? I mean, I think success can be defined in a lot of different ways. I think of success as like the progressive realization of a worthwhile goal. Um, it's not a definite destination. <clears throat> and at different points in your life, it means something different. You know, I grew up with very little economically. And the stressor of life was usually money. Uh, lack of, not abundance of. <laughs> My mom wasn't complaining like, look at these $100 bills over the house. Clean these up. <laughs> uh, so initially, I thought that money was success. And I still don't. I still think it's a component of it. Um, you know, it's like money doesn't buy happiness, but neither does poverty. You know, like it's the handiest thing to have around. So I think it's a component of it, but friendships are important to that. Fulfillment, having peace, um, doing something you believe is worthwhile. You know, I think you need um, something to do, someone to love, and something to hope for. And those things all come together in building a successful life. But the idea of work-life balance, I think, is such a distraction from how to build a happy life. Balance would imply that there's some sort of 50-50 thing, and I just don't see that to be effective because every decision is a trade-off. I'm going to do this and not do that. Oh, I'm neglecting that. Oh, that's bad. And there's this whole cycle of guilt and regret and whatever it is, and you never feel like you're in a perfect place if you're thinking about balance. And so that has not been an effective framework for me, balance. A little bit of this, I think, too, growing up around a lot of entrepreneurs, family businesses and that, they don't, there isn't a line really between their life and their business and whatever. Maybe think about like early days, like growing up in an agriculture area. Um, it doesn't really matter what you have going on. You know, you've got cattle need to be fed at a certain time. And uh, they don't know that it's a holiday. <laughs> they don't care if you have a broken leg. And so you just do those things. And so I think... You, uh, my grandfather always taught me to have, how to have fun and work. Like everything was a game. You did stuff and, and actually finding joy in work. I think a lot of people think that success and happiness is like avoidance of something hard or avoidance of pain or avoidance of the struggle. I don't think that's true. If you look at people who have kind of no real struggle, they're not very happy. And, you know, physically is a good way to look at this. You don't gain any muscle if you're not putting some stress on things. If you just lay around, you just, you just, you know, decay. And so I don't think success is about avoidance of pain. I don't think it's about um, life being easy. If you think, you know, the psychologist would tell you that hard work is actually one of the components that generates a fulfilled person. I've, I have gotten to a point in my life, I, there was a point where I'm like, I'm done with this, I'm just going to retire. Like, this is great. And so I... You know, like I went and got my pilot's license and just the fun stuff. And I lasted about six months and I just realized I don't idle well. I didn't have that purpose, that next thing. And if you look at the statistics, like most people, when they stop actively doing something, they have about 18 months when they're older and they just, they don't have that thing to live for. So I don't 
think that balance, so I, I think about harmony more than balance. Like harmony is something that if you look at a, a great musical score, it's going to have Allegro and Andante. It's got fast and slow and loud and soft. It's that whole blend, that whole balance that makes it beautiful. I mean, if you had uh, just loud and fast, well, you'd have like Anthrax, right? Or Iron Maiden, or like, well, you know, those just mm -hmm. all of that. But and if you had just soft, like you just go to sleep. And I think it's important to know rhythms and margins. Different points of life, those are different. When I was uh, from like 19 to 26, I was a single guy, and I was very focused on trying to learn all the aspects of business. I always had at least you know a job and a side hustle or two. I usually had two or three things going. Admittedly, I slept like four hours a night, but it was just go, go, go. I was full in, full on all the time. And that was, I don't regret that at all. You know, I didn't do the things that like, people do when they're that age. I was locked in and I was fully focused. And I got myself around people on purpose to try and develop. And that was an area where I just felt like it was time to sprint. And then uh, I got married and like together we did that. But then like you just, there's different things that have higher priorities. And I think that that is, it's important to try and figure out where you are right now and what matters. And so the other thing I would say about this sort of creating harmony between your, um, professional life and your personal life is you can incorporate a lot of them together. My last year, uh, last full year when I was at LinkedIn, I flew 142 flights. Most of those were international. And I, and yet in nine and a half years, I did not miss one weekend at home. And when I would go, if it was possible, I'd bring my wife or my kids or whatever it was. We used to have a, a club trip where the top achievers would go and we ended up having it in different regions. And so I would take, and so I would, I, when I had a global team, I had three different regions I would go to. And so the U.S. trip, I would take one of my sons and rotate it each year. Um, the Typically the Asia uh, club trip, I, my wife and I would go. It was like great time to go to, to Thailand or wherever. Mm -hmm. And then the Europe one we do as a family because school was out. Well, I was there to work. I was there to do a bunch of stuff, but it turned out I could incorporate that. Now, that can also just be the simple things, like if you work from home and there's a window of time where the kids come home from school, like I'm shutting down for a half hour and spending that time with them. On the other hand, my entire profession, like once everybody's asleep in my house and is quiet, I have probably a couple hours of doing business. Uh, and I think that that, so I, I think finding ways to incorporate is important, but, excuse me, sorry. Sure. <coughs> Another way, this whole balance conversation almost always comes up with the idea there's a binary choice, personal, professional. And I found at least for me, a more, more effective way from my mind is to think about the components of life and um, in what way do you want to build those? So Franklin Covey used to have a thing they called roles and goals. And, uh, and so you say, I have these roles in my life, and then what am I aspiring to do for that goal? And I, I do that like on a weekly basis where as, you know, for me, it's, you know, the, as a Christian, as a husband, as a father, as a, you know, those, what are those roles and then what do I want to accomplish this week with that? And as scripted as this sounds, it'll be like, Hmm, I haven't done really much as a husband, <laughs> like date night with a wife, whatever it is. Um, something separate and individual for each of the boys because it's easy to just lump them all together. But I think, and that's, that's been really helpful. But as it relates to like trying to live a 
a whole life or, you know, life that generates happiness. Um, I look at it in a way that says, okay, what aspects of life do I have? And um, there's some sort of spiritual aspects to everyone's life. And it could be, they may do meditation. It might be religion. It's something where there's that aspect that's non-tangible. <clears throat> and then the spiritual, mental, like what am I doing for mental health? Either whether it's learning and education or something, um, physical, emotional, financial, relational. And then at each one of those, I think, okay, what am I doing that can help this aspect of that? A lot of the business things you do is financial, but also that might be mental health. It might be relational. It might be, you know, something else that really helps fulfill you. And I think those, having those things together is a lot easier for me to focus on than balance. They'll sort of, they sort of bleed into each other and spill they do. over. Yeah, because if you look, okay, so working out, is that personal or professional? To me, I, people who are physically healthy have almost, not exclusive, but they have a more significant chance of being successful professionally. Their mental health is almost always better. And it's not like, well, how do I feel? Um, I don't know that I've ever felt like working out. I mean, maybe. You know, I went, like, went through high school. I would go into, I was, I lifted at, you know, six o'clock in the morning before school. And, and I never once wanted to wake up. I hated it. Wake up 530 in the morning, especially my older brother was the one waking me up. And even when I'd get in and start working out, I didn't, it was like, it took 15, 20 minutes. But then by the time you're done, your endorphins are up and you're great. And you start that day and then everybody else is just stumbling into school tired. That was a big lesson for me. It's like, you know, you don't have to feel like doing something. You can do it and you feel good. That's an example, I think, of something where physical exercise, like if people don't know where to start and how to prioritize all the stuff in life and they're overwhelmed by everything, I would start with like, get your butt off the couch and go do something, like do something physical. I always felt that for me, working out, because that was at one point very important to me, is it sort of meditative, right? Mm -hmm. sort of, and you can do, you work at your head and then when you sort of reset and focus. Yeah. And so it, there's definite bleed over between working out mental health, physical health. So that I can relate for to. For sure. And, and like your mind is, and there's so much science behind like your mind being more active in that. You know, I find for myself, there's like, um, for me personally, for, for my sort of circadian rhythms, what works best is working out in the middle of the day. So like either early afternoon or right in there, because otherwise I'm sort of like, eh, by the middle afternoon. That's the thing you have to go and you, those days you don't want to go, right? That's Yeah, and it's like, oh, but I'd <laughs> rather just like go to eat Italian food right now. And so, but doing those things, I think helps a lot. And look, I've been guilty of not doing any of this stuff. You know, my sleep patterns are usually terrible. And I, you know, like, we all are imperfect and you got to like deal with that. But I think physical health goes along. Like if you don't know what to do, get rigorous exercise. And like you said, you have to know yourself. So for me, like actually shutting my brain off, pretty hard to do. It's not always doing something productive. <laughs> it's super not productive. But how do you do that? I have to do something exercise-wise where it's like you just have to focus. And so you can't, you know, like I, uh, so like, wrestling is one of my sports. And so one of the things I've noticed is like if I'm in, like we've got a, a gym at home and stuff, and I'm like wrestling with my boys or whatever, nothing else, you're not thinking about anything else. Or you're going to get like a foot in the mouth. <laughs> you, there's enough consciousness that you can do that. And I think that's really, you know, it's something that we neglect in we don't realize how privileged of a time in history we live in. We live in society where it's um, 
we're not being invaded, you know, we're not, uh, we don't have some sort of wild animals that are likely going to, you know, steal our children and eat them at night. You know, we don't, we're not, we're unlikely to starve to death this evening. We actually have the problem of abundance. And so we get so complacent with all these things. And I think, I think like starting to move, finding a path to like rigorous exercise is really important. The other thing, the final thing I would say is like, our culture is, if you don't consciously make choices, it will suck you into a bad place mentally. It's really bad food, generally speaking, processed foods that are just bad for us in every way. Um, if you go, I, I saw on um, uh, Twitter a couple of days ago, there's like a, a video footage of New York City streets. So people like walking on the streets. I think it was in the 30s or somewhere in there. I saw that. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I'm looking at first, they had like, we were all really nicely dressed and they had these little cool hats, or whatever. I noticed the posture of people. They weren't like this, like we were all hunched over. And there was no obesity. And, you know, the, but the, look at the food quality. That's changed a lot. So, you know, that's, that's one. The other thing our society will suck you into is staring at screens all day long. And that is, uh, I think, it's really damaging to our mental health. And I'm guilty of it. I mean, like, for work, you're staring at a screen. And for entertainment, you're staring at a screen. And people say, well, I don't have time to read. I don't have time to work out. Go to your phone and look at yesterday's screen time and tell me you don't have time. It's hours. And yeah, but I'm just gonna like scroll it, it, and, and it, it's, it sucks you in and it's maybe long form content or it might be it's TikTok or it's reels or it's shorts or whatever it is. And too much time on that, like it's just, it doesn't lead to a good place mentally because you're not attached to reality and it leads to depression and anxiety and uncertainty and doubt and division. So anyway, that, I think if, if you let, if you're not conscious of living your life on purpose, it will happen to you. And we live in a world of abundance that has this sort of gluttonous um, impact on us. And gluttony never leads to health, good health. And this, but I think the same is true with entertainment and all the other things we do. It's an influx of a bunch of things that aren't good for us. And so making conscious choices about that is really important. And this is the last, I think the last point, because you mentioned spirituality is important to you. I just want to touch on that just a little bit because I know it's important to you. And, and you know, you think about spirituality and what it means to you. Um, and I know what it means to me. It may mean something, probably means something different. But, you know, in your day-to-day -day life, you know, you're, you're in your phone, you're staring at this screen. Mm -hmm. how, how do you become that, maybe it's a self-awareness, spirituality, whatever you call it, that you can take those moments and sort of reflect on a different level mm -hmm. and connect at a different level and how has that in sort of impacted your decisions in business, personal, interpersonal relationships, whatever? Yeah, it's a really good question. Like, to me, a spirituality is something I think that you, uh, you can feel is hard to describe. Maybe like the wind, although scientists can describe that pretty well, I guess. Um, I, I know when I'm at peace. And so I, I think about spirituality as different than religion. So, but... I feel, and I think this might be of having grown up around nature and, you know, around, you know, plants and animals and all that, is it, it seems to me that there's a much, there's a, Einstein said, you either believe nothing is a miracle or everything is a miracle. And I look at everything as kind of a miracle. And, and I think about the most, the smallest particles we understand, you know, subatomic particles, behave almost exactly the same as the solar system. Big things. I'm like, well, that's fascinating. And then somewhere in the middle, there's us. <laughs> and... So I think when you're in touch with that force, to me, that's God. But everybody has different views on how this works. And when I feel like I'm in harmony with what I truly 
believe and I can't articulate, but I know when I'm in harmony with that and I know when I'm not. Everybody does. Everyone knows when they're at peace with themselves and when they're not at peace with themselves. There's also the concept of like a conscience. Am I doing the right thing or not? I don't care about the rules and the laws and all that. You know, you either feel good about what you're doing or you don't feel good about what you're doing if you're honest with yourself. That takes being able to quiet yourself and listen and not just be bombarded with everything on the outside. So here's what I've noticed about me being in a good place there and me not being in a good place there. I've been on both sides of that spectrum. And the, the darkest times, the worst choices, the failures that I've in every aspect of my life, and I've had a lot of just things that are not who I believe I should be. I think everyone does. Those times are when I am not taking the time to get centered. For me, that comes, uh, I can tell you like the best times of my life, first thing in the morning or, or early anyway, I'm, it's reading, it's prayer, it's meditation. It's the things that I do that I get to be at peace with what I believe and how I feel. And sometimes throughout the day, but it's for sure starting and ending the day that way. And when I don't do that, pretty soon you stop for a little bit and it's easy to stop altogether. And then you find yourself in a place where you haven't been in touch you know, the way that I think about it, I haven't been in touch with God. Others might think, but if when you haven't been to that place for a long time, your everything about you isn't in tune with what you know you should be, what you're capable of. You're not living up to either an expectation of yourself or however you want to measure it. That's the difference for me. Is You know, it's those making sure that I know what brings peace and what doesn't. And I'm acting on those you know, those things to keep myself centered. That's great. Uh, I feel like when, uh, you're at connected. With, when you're at peace with yourself, others feel safe. And that comes, like what we talked about with ego and pride and all that stuff that comes into like bad leadership, you know, people who are um, insecure. Incredibly insecure, I was going to say. It's because they haven't found that inside of themselves. And if you find it inside of yourself, you're also not threatened by someone else's belief systems or what, you know, you're not trying to convert them to you, how you think you're just okay with it. And when you're in that place, like great things happen.